Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, he, him, I am the self-appointed film expert. And my name is Laura, she, her, and I'm the self-appointed lit expert. And this is a full spoilers podcast. We're spoiling everything in the short story today and everything in the movie we are covering Brokeback Mountain. Ooh, I'm so excited. I've wanted to cover this since we started the pod. Yes, a long time coming. This is part one of our two-part series of Repressed Gay Cowboys. We'll be covering The Power of the Dog later on this season. Also cannot wait for that episode. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk about these films. Yeah, it's funny. Both films are acclaimed. Both films were the favorite to win Best Picture, and both films lost in an upset. Yeah, which we'll, we'll talk about Share my about thoughts. That. Yeah. And <laughs> even another further crossover, Annie Prue, who wrote Brokeback Mountain, the short story, wrote an afterword for the edition of Power of the Dog that we purchased mm -hmm. through Village Wells Books. <laughs> in Culver City. In Culver. California, if you're in the greater Los Angeles area, mm -hmm. please give them your money mm -hmm. instead of going through bigger box stores. Or Amazon. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Although I'm a fan of Barnes & Noble. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'll absolutely give Barnes & Noble my money. Even though they're yeah. technically big box. But not anymore. They have so few locations. That's true. It's sad. But every time I'm around one, I pop in. And we have a lot of the Barnes & Noble classics. Mm. That whole set that they publish, along with their, their end notes and their footnotes throughout the text and their translations too, they, they publish really good translations. Go patronize your local Barnes & Noble if you have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, this episode has been a long time coming, but we're finally here and covering this extremely and, sad, yeah. somber, effective story. Effective, yeah. Yeah. The short story came out, as you said, in the New York Times in 1997. Mm -hmm. Much like Spiderhead. Yep, which we covered earlier on this season. Oh, and I have a... Mo oh, I was going to say something about Spiderhead. Shoot, I oh, forgot about that. Go ahead. Well, do you want to finish introducing... Brokeback? Sure. Yeah, okay, sure. sorry. Yeah, short story published in the uh, New Yorker in 1997, and then the film was adapted by Larry McCurdy and Diana Osana. They wrote the screenplay and directed by Ang Lee, released in 2005. Long time ago. Yeah, we were in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. Almost 20 years ago, out. yeah. Whoa. Yeah, hitting those milestones. <laughs> That's trippy. Yeah. <laughs> Danny yeah. just shut down for a moment. He had Whoa. to reboot. <laughs> you, like, ever have this, like... <laughs> um, Ang Lee is quite the eclectic filmmaker. He doesn't really have a distinct style at all. No. A lot of his films are great. A lot of his films are not so great. It's exciting to talk about someone like him because he's not necessarily a journeyman director, meaning he'll just take a job. He clearly puts love and passion into every single project. He, he's very meticulous, but sometimes it's disastrous. Mm. Sometimes it's mediocre. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's great. You got the whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Brokeback Mountain, this is a part of his career where he was uh, releasing bangers. But not so much anymore, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll get to that. But first, 
your spider head. Okay, comment. so I... Oh, full spoilers for spider head. Yes. So if you don't want to hear this, jump ahead uh, three minutes. Yeah, I'll probably be talking nonstop for three minutes. Okay, so I rarely listen to our episodes. I find it fairly abrasive to listen to my own voice. Um, oh, just admit so, you don't like listening to my voice. It's a little nasally. Yeah, it's you. It's, it's not me. It's a little nasally. No, it's not. Um, but anyway, I for a couple reasons I won't go into, I ended up listening to our Spiderhead episode. And while I was listening to it, I was walking to a doctor's appointment. And so I had nothing really to think about except for this story. And The doctor gave you that um, those butt wart. Ew, no. (laughs) No, I was just going for a checkup. (laughs) Okay, as long as you've got just the the ointment for your butt warts. All right, continue. Thanks a lot. So I I had nothing to think about (laughs) because I didn't, I wasn't distracted by my butt warts. And I, I think I came up with a really intriguing, I think something that's really intriguing, a way to fix the ending so that it doesn't end in the same way as the short story does. So there's a little twist to it, Mm -hmm. but it also makes it emotionally more agreeable (laughs) Mm -hmm. and fulfilling. So what I started thinking about, because you made a comment about why we see Steve, which is the the investigator played by Chris Hemsworth, why we see Steve start to self-administer his drugs. And I started thinking about this and I was like, here's what you should do. You take the underlying story of the fact that he's depressed because his dad left as a child. Mm -hmm. And he wants to fix that. And that's why he starts developing the drugs for um, not only sexual attraction or or romantic love, but also he's interested in creating that feeling um, for parental love, Mm -hmm. right? So he starts to develop these drugs thinking like, maybe someday I'll be able to give this to my dad and it will make him love me and it will allow us to grow a relationship together. But then maybe what you could do instead of having Jeff die like he does at the end of the short story, you could have a moment where Jeff, like what happens in the movie, where he makes a decision not to to sort of, like, he can resist the drugs, basically. So he makes some kind of decision that proves to Steve that as much as he wants to believe that a drug can change someone's essence or, like, essential personality, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. And so then he ends up becoming so depressed after that that that's why he ends up... I don't say that you have to kill him or he has to kill himself, but that's what happens at the end of the of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you want to retain that storyline, I would say it would be interesting to see him come to that realization and understand that he's never going to be able to manufacture a parental love relationship. And so that's what drives him to either A, shut the program down, or B, kill himself. Right. I think that would be such a better ending. And because I was not able to think on my feet and come up with that during the episode, I thought it was interesting enough to possibly share on the podcast with you. No. I think it fixes a lot of problems. I completely agree. It fits into the overall thesis of both the short story and the movie in Mm -hmm. that you can momentarily change someone's demeanor but you cannot rewire someone's humanity. Yeah. So you, no matter what drug he would give to his father, at the end of the day, 
he can't make a relationship blossom out of nowhere if it's not there. Yeah, so, yeah. I think that stays true to the dark mm-hmm. themes yep. of the original story, and it doesn't turn into this weird kind of funny, like, let's play an 80s playlist. Not and rock. Yeah, so anyway, I, yep. I just wanted to share that. I yeah. thought it was kind of Adds more dimension to Chris Hemsworth's... Chris Hemsworth's? Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. To his character in more yeah. development which yeah. of course we love recording yeah. this podcast is a lot like having an argument with someone and then a week later coming up with a perfect response yeah. in the shower yeah yeah so well, a lot it's... of things we say in the moment we're like and when we listen back we're like yeah i wish uh i said this well and the other thing that's kind of a bummer is in real time we only recorded that episode like a couple weeks ago and it just dropped last week but because of the way that we record these episodes now, everybody's going to hear this episode in like three weeks. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. it's going to be even later when I have this like amazing revelation about Spiderhead. If you're listening to so, this, you're in the future. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What's it like? <laughs> so it's kind of a bummer that we can listen to things or even just editing. Like sometimes we edit a day later and you're like, God damn it. I, I should it's have said this. analogous to... But, releasing a movie and then wanting sure. to edit it after the fact yeah which well, some filmmakers do yeah <laughs> um, oh there yeah i was gonna go into like a side story it doesn't matter never mind anyway you'd love to hear it though it's about it's about like the public call for Zack snyder to release his cut of justice league movie but he already did and that. then no, no no but then it was funny because it was a piece about how people were speculating about how many people were actually bots oh, right. on twitter <laughs> so I, I don't know it was just kind of funny I, yeah, and it's I like such more... a side yeah story that it doesn't matter gotcha. but anyway i just read that and i thought it was really funny because he felt so good and like high-minded about him like mm-hmm. coming out with it and then it wasn't that great and i then... mean i don't even like Zack Snyder that much but i'm happy that he was able to release his cut. It's not exactly a cut. It's more of just like everything that was filmed mm-hmm. was edited into a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. But anyway, yeah, it was yeah. just it was just funny to think about. But anyway, okay, we can um we can get back on track with Brokeback. I adore this source material. Mm-hmm. Did we want to do any more of an introduction, or do we want to get into yeah, journeys? I don't have anything. I was gonna jump into my journey. Go ahead. Unless you have a reason to go first do you want to go first or no uh, all i have to say is that the short story i listened to it by uh it was narrated oh. by campbell scott hmm. i'm not familiar a, a great actor and also a filmmaker as well i was lucky enough to actually find a a rare edition of brokeback mountain at goodwill that is not the collection of short stories that it was originally published in but just you know it, it has like the the movie poster as a cover and yeah. it's just Brokeback Mountain the short story um it's probably 30 pages back in front it's mm-hmm. very short but I was lucky enough to find one at Goodwill which is pretty cool nice so that's the edition that we have and that I read so my journey starts in, when I was a freshman in college so this is 2012 and that's not only after the movie came out but it's also after Heath Ledger had died in 2008 I think the only reason I knew this film was out was because 
after Heath Ledger had died, I had seen The Dark Knight. And I remember that they did that huge remembrance piece at the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Growing up, my parents actually, that was like the one night a year we would, we would eat dinner in front of the television was the Academy Awards, which is so odd because it was like we never really watched any of the films. Mm. <laughs> but that was still like a special night for us. I don't know why. It was just one of those things. So I remember there was a huge remembrance piece about Heath Ledger and there were clips from Brokeback Mountain in there. But I think it was, I was too young in 2008 probably to see this source material. Yeah. And so I was in college. And of course, as a freshman, you start to explore things that your parents would never have let you watch. And so I was kind of going through, this is also when Netflix uploaded basically a backlog of everything that they owned to their streaming service. So I had access to Brokeback Mountain through Netflix. And one night for, I don't know, whatever reason, I turned this on in my dorm room and watched it and it emotionally destroyed me. Mm -hmm. I loved it even though at that point I was not really a movie aficionado, connoisseur, fanatic, yeah. if you will. And and I remember just I was I was just sitting in my in my room crying at the screen. I think the credits rolling and I'm just rolling and tears are rolling down my cheeks. And at that time I was hardcore struggling with my with my roommate really bad situation and she happened to walk in right after I had finished the movie and I was in a very emotionally raw you know place very vulnerable and she I, I will I will be the bigger person and not name this person but if she ever listens to this I hope you've changed she walks Samantha in Samantha Reynolds <laughs> <laughs> no. Wait, how did you know? Just kidding. No, no, no. Um, she walks in and she goes, you know, oh, like, what's the matter? And I don't remember exactly the words that were exchanged, but I did tell her that I finished Brokeback Mountain. And her reaction to me saying that I was just blown away by this movie, I clearly had a positive reaction, even though I was very, you know, sadly affected, of course. Her reaction, I'm almost getting like a visceral memory of how she basically blasted me for being disgusting. Oh, because she was hardcore um, because she was religious. she is homophobic and hardcore religious. And I was like I said, I was in such an emotionally raw place. And the reason I found this movie so beautiful was because this was one of the first films that I'd ever seen a gay storyline be not only not not aggressively be like this is gay right. you know like and and focusing on that it, what hit me so beautifully about this film was like this is just a love story it's a tragic love story but it's just a love story mm. right and it was it just affected me in this like profound way that it, it, it like reframed love i think in a lot of ways for me and she just like basically took like a machete and cut my heart out mm -hmm. It, it was it was such a negative reaction and she started just going into how disgusting that was and like i'm so shocked that you could even watch that movie it's so and this movie isn't even that graphic and she but anyway right. she she just dumped on me and again I, like freshman year is really a, a tough thing for me but that moment in particular i remember coming away and just being like i just can't interact mm -hmm. with this person in a positive way but it's always stuck with me I, if you watch this film like i don't think that you can come away not being profoundly touched yeah and so 
to be honest though, I was almost afraid to rewatch it because I was like, I don't know if it's gonna live up to how it hit me the first time or you know maybe it doesn't hold up or maybe i'm going to be affected in the same way and it's going to really gut me again so i actually had never revisited it other than the fact that actually the the score i listen to quite often it's one of my favorite pieces of score um in the last like like 30 years it's incredible so i listened to the score a lot but i had not rewatched it until i went to I went to England on a work trip recently and I was, they had it on England on the UK Netflix. So I happened to watch it there. It's not available on American Netflix, unfortunately, but I happened yeah. to watch it there when I had an, an, um, an off night for work and I was crying in bed <laughs> once again after finishing this movie. I had read it a while ago, so this is my second time reading the short story and I am so profoundly touched as well by the short story because of how lean it is. It's mm -hmm. so, it's exactly like the movie. There's not a no lot fluff, of, baby. there's no fluff. And I think this is such a wonderful example of get in, say it, get out. It's, it's so crazy because this short story, it's so short, but there's so much packed into it. And there's so much space too, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, just, I think from the setting and the character development, it blows me away. And and again, like this is one of, I think I made this argument a while ago on another episode about how I have this like running theory about how every single book could be like 50 pages long. If if you, if you're a good enough writer, I think you can make any novel a short story. And Except for Pillars of the Earth. Oh, I was gonna say actually, and this the, the the only exception, the one and only exception, is anything that Stephen King writes because anything that he writes, I want more of. Like eleven twenty two sixty three, never change that book. But anyway, I'm sorry, I'm going on a little bit too much. But this story profoundly affected me, and I think opened the door for so many more stories. In particular, stuff like Call Me by Your Name, which I think is another example of a quote-unquote gay love story that is just a love story and I want more stories to focus on that because if you compare it to something like blue is the warmest color they were so aggressive about the fact that it was a gay story that I think they lost a lot of the realism for people who don't care to focus on that side of things. Mm -hmm. I think it's more interesting to just look at two people falling in love and seeing what that does to each person. I'm not as interested in having a discussion about like whether or not it's a gay love story or not. I'm just, mm -hmm. a, I'm more interested in seeing two people who fall in love and um, the consequences of that, whether it's positive or negative. So again, this is how I ingested this source material and when I ingested it again I found that I was just as profoundly affected by both the story and the movie that Amen. is my long-winded <laughs> journey I apologize for anyone yeah, that's our time no I'm kidding yeah you had mentioned the score by Gustavo Santaolaja yeah. he won uh, the Oscar for the score in 2006 and then a year later he won an oscar for his score on babel and yeah he's more of a musician than he is a composer but mm. occasionally when he dips his toes into composing films he wins oscars it's his side job my journey starts back in 2005 when this movie came out now i did not mm. watch it during that time i've always been into films 
but I wasn't into the Oscars until I was around 13 years old. So close to 2005, but... And you didn't start putting big money on it until yes. you were 14. Yep. And I got I got in deep with the Sharks when I was 15. Like, we're still in debt. We're on the run. <laughs> <laughs> that Oscar money runs out quick. But I knew of the cultural impact of the movie because of the, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. My brother Matt used to watch that show when he was in high school and college and I would watch him watch it. And so I knew about the movie. I knew that that was a hit and that the industry was talking about because it was a, you know, a gay love story. And at the time, that was a, a huge deal. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before. I grew up going to um, a Protestant congregational church that's completely fine with gay marriage. And so, like, I, it's not that I was appalled or anything by the story. I was just surprised because I didn't, I'm like, I didn't know that people made movies about that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that was a thing. And well, it, it wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't mm -hmm. really a thing. Then in 2006, I had heard there was a big controversy with Crash winning Best Picture over yeah. Brokeback Mountain. Now, I wasn't big into the Oscars at that point, as I've said, so I didn't really see what the big deal was. When I watched Crash as a kid, I saw it on TV when I think I was in seventh grade, it deeply moved me. Hmm. I re I've since rewatched it years later and have come to understand how on the nose and obvious and overblown and kind of inadvertently offensive it is the fact that it's just so like about like this is about racism and, hmm. and all this and I've it, never seen it. It's it's too much and uh, the fact that it won over Brokeback Mountain is just I mean Crash is widely considered to be the worst more so because it was up against Brokeback Mountain which yeah. would have been such a, an edgy subversive move the right move, the right move but subversive nonetheless yeah. for the time for the time well and as I don't mean to interrupt this but but it's so interesting to watch press junkets and people asking Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger at the time about like, did you, when you took this role, you know, mm -hmm. were you, were you trying to break the mold? Their, their questions are so immature and it's so cringy to watch people react to this movie at the time. Not that we've come super far because again, in 2012, my roommate was disgusted that I was, you know, watching this movie and and moved by it. But it's it's really hard to watch that. And I think it's not an excuse for the fact that this didn't win Best Picture because it truly should have just on a cinematic mm -hmm. level. But it is really cringy to watch people react to this movie. And I think, it again, it's not an excuse, but I think it would have been really hard for this film to overcome that in 2005 slash six, unfortunately. But anyway. Yeah, the, I mean, that immaturity was also reflected in the Academy itself yes, where yes. they... It, they just weren't ready. They just weren't there mm -hmm. at the time to uh, give this the win. The movie was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay, 
Best Director, Ang Lee. And usually when you win Best Director, you think, okay, that's going to be Best Picture. But no, Crash won. And Jack Nicholson, this is on YouTube. You can look it up with Crash winning Best Picture. Look, you know, type it in YouTube. (laughs) And Jack Nicholson, everyone in the room was so convinced that Brokeback Mountain was going to win. It was the favorite. That when Jack Nicholson reads off Crash, you can hear from the crowd a gasp. Mm -hmm. So like a collective gasp. And then Jack Nicholson looks to the corner, which which was Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese sitting there. <laughs> it, it doesn't go to them, but after Jack Nicholson says he goes crash, he looks he looks to <laughs> his buds and goes whoa. He mouths what you can see him mouth. Oh my whoa. gosh! And he like points up to the sky, like when he says crash, as in like bet you didn't see that coming uh Yikes. jack nicholson has admitted that yeah he voted for brokeback mountain too and he thought like everyone else i was gonna win who knows how so um the math stupid worked yeah out like that i mean very frequently the wrong movie wins for best picture that's kind of the whole academy's whole deal yeah no <laughs> but, seriously it's it's so frustrating that it's such a highly regarded award but just consistently, and I mean, this is kind of why we want to talk about Power of the Dog in close succession to this film, because I think both Danny and I agree that similarly, Coda was a great movie, but Power yeah. of the Dog is objectively better. And mm-hmm. the fact that this type of movie cannot seem to overcome the homophobia and just sort of the, the what is it, the... um the institution of the Academy Awards to not be able to get over mm-hmm. certain topics as something to be rewarded is a tragedy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Moonlight is such a great yes, uh, exception. Yes, that's but, you know, a that great was, exception. That was 2017 when it won. So. Yeah, and it's, yeah, we're kind of tapping our foot ready for the academy to finally reward excellence not the again coda was a great film but yes we watched power of the dog we were blown away and then a couple months later we didn't get around to coda for a while i think we were waiting for it to go on to streaming and we watched it and i was like all right either coda blows me away or i get really pissed yeah. <laughs> that power of the dog did not win best picture and i came out unfortunately of coda which i think i would have liked more if i hadn't been going in with such a high bar that power of the dog set for me and that i came away and i was like you know what i didn't like coda and that's a bummer for that movie because i think it is good and it has some great messages i think the acting was stellar but i it's i a Massachusetts just movie which i love that's also a point in its favor yeah. but i was more frustrated than um than impressed with the movie unfortunately so anyway that's a little more about our yeah we'll get journey uh, (laughs) next episode yeah but i just have to rant about it every time it comes up like i mean yeah that's the thing it's like i actually loved coda but i will always think of power the dog yeah uh and that just i guess that's our cross to bear though because we're really invested in the academy awards that's true yeah all right back to my journey (laughs) and then i Got around to watching this years later in high school. Was really affected by it. Really enjoyed it. And then I went on... I've talked about this many times on the pod, so I'm sorry for our longtime listeners, uh, Mom and Dad. Yeah, basically. I went on a cross-country trip to move out here to L.A. Mm. a year before I met you. Oh. And we did the north northern route. So we went like up to Chicago and then you know down and 
um, through the Midwest and then the West. So I drove through Wyoming, which where this is where the story takes place. Mm-hmm. Filmed in Alberta, but takes place in Wyoming, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So it, it, it is cheaper to fly everyone out from L.A. to Canada mm-hmm. than it is to film in Wyoming. Yeah. That's how good the tax breaks are. It's so interesting, too, because Wyoming is such a bumfuck nowhere state that you'd think that they would want to. Like Oklahoma gives really good film tax breaks yeah. because they want Same people to. Mexico. Yeah, exactly. So you'd think that that Wyoming would be giving away money to have people film there, but they don't. Ironically, California doesn't give good tax breaks when that's where... (laughs) Yeah, that's also very weird. LA is in California. Hello. So we drove through Wyoming. Now, look, let's not get into the politics of the people in that state. The natural beauty of Wyoming. It was so breathtaking to me that there were moments when we were traveling there and I was convinced that I was going to move there instead of mm. going to LA. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's something I love, you know, open vistas with mountains in the background. Mm-hmm. That, that's just aesthetically that taps into a part of my brain that's like, yep, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I like, baby. Mm-hmm. And Wyoming is just so, in terms of the geography, mm-hmm. so diverse. You have canyons, you have plains, plains, tundras, of course, Yellowstone, which, listen, I haven't been to all the national parks. I've been to like five national parks, but I don't think you can get better than Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What an incredible... I, 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 tell every, I tell strangers on the street to go to Yellowstone. It was a religious experience. I was ready to give up on my film career to go be a white water raft guide mm-hmm. in Yellowstone because I just had such a fun time and I felt reborn. Now, to bring politics back into it, <laughs> there was a moment where we were parting out with the local townies and this was right before the 2016 election. We didn't bring up Trump, someone else did. And they that, always will. They, yeah. they, you know, it's just like, let it go. Right. And then yeah. uh, the town of Cody, Wyoming, their true colors came out. It was it was really an ugly an ugly scene. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is a real drag that you have a state that's this beautiful, but the people, at least who we encountered, just were so uh, ugly. twisted and <laughs> demented. Yes. Uh, ugly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all I'll say uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the politics. I actually, it's not like I listen to country music, but there's something about, like, the cowboy aesthetic that I, I like. Don't judge me. Uh, I'm, I will, I'm not judging you because I, I find that this movie really celebrates that, yeah. even as much as it also gets real about the internal internalized anger and hatred yes. toward other people. I think that this really does harken back to sort of that era of the end of the cowboy era, but also the beauty of the open road. Actually, I think there's a song on this soundtrack called The Open Road or something like that. It really does celebrate that time period that's kind of gone now. So I do unironically love that kind of cowboy aesthetic. I wish I could just wear cowboy hats and flannel i i'm not i'm not joking around here like i actually like that but alas i'm in you LA. can do it for halloween maybe once 
That, that's true. And then I'll let go it go. Jack Twist. Oh, <laughs> you, can go as you could. Oh, Ennis or or Jack. Did you say you'd be Jack Twist, and I could be Ennis? I just said that. Watching this movie years later, after post that road trip, which I think about daily. Yeah, that was. I'm super transported great time. right back to that time. I I almost get a pit in my stomach because I'm like. Oh, I want to be there. This was shot all in location. And yes, even though it was filmed in Canada, looks virtually identical to uh, like the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Another, it's a link to Power the Dog just because that was filmed in um, New Zealand and it's supposed to be taking place in Montana. Very similar landscapes. So I co-sign everything you say about the powerful story. But in addition to that, yeah. just the fact that it was filmed on location, which I love. I work in VFX right now in LED tech, which can transport you anywhere. But to be honest, there's nothing like shooting for real against open mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. LED tech is not there for these type of vistas. Yeah. It can shoot it can shoot alien worlds and anything you want. Star Wars, you know, anything you want there. But for these cowboy open range stories, you got to be boots on the ground shooting on location. Yeah. So I also love it for that. It it ties directly into that very special time in my life when mm-hmm. I was finding yeah. myself on the open road. Mhm. Um, yeah, so that's that's it. So let's get into the analysis. The movie, would you say, is extremely close to the short story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's anything really that strays, even down to, like, the fact that Ennis has two kids that are mm-hmm. girls. Like, all the details, all of the names are exactly the same. Um, A lot of dialogue is the same. Dialogue is the same. I which I quit you. I was going to say, so a lot of the dialogue is not only the same, but the spaces between dialogue are very similar because we get characters who are not verbose, right? Mm-hmm. Ennis maybe says 20 lines in the whole film and i would say he probably has about five full lines in the short story so i don't think that there's a lot of change and the themes are exactly the same too it's so impressive to see these really deep themes on the screen exactly as i think annie prue wanted to portray them in her short story yeah i think Something that the movie adds is that it shows Jack Twist going down to Mexico and going down, you know, as gay men had to do during that time, like go to a certain part of town Mm -hmm. to hook up. And not only that, but just remove themselves so fully from where they lived because people could recognize him and that's ultimately his downfall he interacts one time with someone who's not gay at a bar and kind of spots him and then people that he knew spots him later and eventually end up murdering him so it's it's that not only that specific area but it's also like the geographic removal of oneself so that you you can't be recognized well yeah we can talk about that so both the short story and the movie don't outright confirm that he was murdered. So I would say... It's very heavily implied, but like all implications, without concrete proof, Right. it's just that. I would say maybe the biggest... I maybe have to walk back my statement. The biggest difference between the book 
and the movie is that I'm pretty sure in the book it's suggested that it was an accident more than the movie. I think the movie seems to suggest kind of lean a little bit more into the fact that it was murder. That's kind of how I read it. I, I don't... Yeah, I, I interpreted it the opposite way. In the short story, when Ennis calls Jack's wife yeah. and then interacts with Jack's parents, he was talking about um, how Jack had wanted... was talking to another man and he was going to start a ranch with him. Then Ennis has a thought saying, okay, then word did get out. And so, meaning that it probably was murder mm-hmm. as opposed to an accident. In the movie, what they do is after... So, Anne Hathaway, who plays Jack's wife, gives a very stoic performance mm-hmm. that was suggest that she might have had suspicions that Jack was gay. And then after, when when Ennis calls, that's kind of confirmation. So, what, what the movie does is after she tells the story of Jack's accident with the tire... Then it has a quick flash of a scene of Jack getting attacked and murdered, and then it cuts right back to Ennis, which would suggest that that's Ennis's thoughts. But it could be like the actual, like it could either be his thoughts or it could be what actually happened. Mm-hmm. I I put more stock into Anne Hathaway's performance of being so checked out mm-hmm. that that makes me feel that she knew and she knows exactly even possibly who murdered Jack mm-hmm. and she just does not care. That's kind of how I interpret it. But it the point it is it doesn't matter. The point is, is that it's very sad that it's such a 50-50, yeah. right? About how he's just as likely to have been in a tragic accident that it is that he also might have been identified as gay and murdered for that, obviously that being a hate crime. But I don't know this, I don't know if we want to talk about performances so Let's upfront. <laughs> I, I don't know that we've seen Anne Hathaway in a movie that we've covered for the podcast. Have we had her in a you know, episode yet? I think you're right. So then I can kind of talk about how my feelings toward her as an actor. I feel like this might be a really unpopular opinion, but I don't think she's a good actor. I would, um, I would say that is the opinion after like she won for Les Mis and then everyone, the hate, not hate, but I um, like dis- I think after that, that Oscar really like screwed her, I think. That's interesting because I always felt that way. So I guess maybe my one exception is Princess Diaries. I don't yeah. think that's a very strong performance. I think like plenty of other people could have stepped into that role and probably done a better job. But because I'm so nostalgic toward the movie, I'm mm-hmm. inclined to just be able to rewatch that. I just find her performances stiff. And I think that that rings true for this performance. As much as I love the movie, I think everybody's bringing their A game and she just can't keep up. That's how I feel in every interaction that she has with Jack. I just don't think they have chemistry. And on one hand, I'm torn because I think they're not really supposed to have a lot of chemistry. It's very clear that she's a beard. So on one hand, like the idea that he needs someone to be able to prove that he's not gay, it doesn't matter if they have chemistry. But on the other side, it's kind of like, even at that point, I want a better performance out of her Mm -hmm. to sell me her motivations, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I don't know how you feel about her, but I just thought we could talk about Anne Hathaway's performance up front to kind of get it out of the way because gotcha. I don't like it. <laughs> this is funny. I feel like a role reversal here. I'm usually the one like singling out a- actors being like, that was bad. Mm. And this was good. <laughs> yeah. I don't have an opinion of Anne Hathaway one way or the other. I think she's good in some stuff. I think she was saddled with some pretty poor dialogue in uh, Interstellar, uh, which Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. She has a whole speech about how love is the most important thing that transcends all (laughs) uh, aspects of life uh, in the universe, which is just like terrible, both in the writing and the performance. But I... I didn't notice anything about her. I just, like, I don't buy her accent. I don't buy her skill in rodeo. I don't buy buy her. I I just, I don't buy her as an actor in the, and it's funny because, like, you can compare it to Lisa Cardinelli's character in this, and I think she kind of disappears into the character. I, that's a totally different story. I love her. Everything that she's in. Um, Granted, I haven't seen the Scooby-Doo movies, but I'm sure she would win me over with the Scooby-Doo Velma performance, but, but she is good in every single thing she does. She's in Mad Men. She's in Freaks and geeks she pops up in these incredible roles oh uh dead to me new girl she pops up in these really small roles sometimes and and she nails it every time and i believe that she is kind of a white trash nobody in this film she sells it and she's in what two scenes Mm -hmm. she nails it and i just don't believe anne hathaway is this like polished cowgirl i don't believe her accent i don't believe anything about her so anyway i just wanted to touch on that and she's not a hugely significant role but at the t- same time she is because she becomes jack's he he kind of like clings to her a little bit at least the relationship to be able to be his beard and be his cover and um Can you describe what a beard is oh yeah it's just a like a person that someone who does not identify as straight uses to prove their uh heterosexuality mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. I guess I didn't define that, but uh, I just assume people know what that means. So it's it, it can be a really tragic role, especially if they don't know that they're being used in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also talk about some other people that are incredibly well cast, regardless of their sexuality, because of, you know, it would have been better probably to have a gay person uh-huh. in a in a leading role but i think honestly in 2005 that probably wouldn't have happened probably not yeah but Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal just so both incredible both nominated for oscars Heath for lead actor Jake Gyllenhaal for supporting actor honestly Mm -hmm. he could have been lead as well but i think of like how the academy works out in terms of like screen time and lines Mm. and the fact that Jack kind of dips out in the third act. I think yeah. because of that, they campaign for supporting. It's also a strategy thing, right? Because you yeah. can split votes. Exactly. And then neither of them might have won lead, lead exactly. or or supporting. So yeah. it's but neither of tough. them won anyways. So Philip Seymour Hoffman won that year for Capote, which honestly I get. If I you've haven't seen, seen that, that either. Incredible, I gotta see that. I love him. We just watched The Master recently. He's so good in that. Yeah. Another actor who died so young. Oh my gosh. And then Jake Gyllenhaal lost to George Clooney uh, for George Clooney was in Syriana. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that, but. You know, everyone's favorite 
movie from 2005. <laughs> Isn't that so funny when you look at the Academy Awards and you're like, that was not an enduring movie. And, and yeah. even Crash. Like, we've talked about so many of these already that are just like, who fucking remembers these other movies? Yeah. And that, you know what, that's, oh, gosh, I don't want to, like, get onto my soapbox again, but that's just so frustrating about how, like, I'm sure the Academy can recognize the fact that they're making the wrong decisions. Who watches Brokeback Mountain and is like, that's not, that's not my choice for Beck's picture. I, you know what I mean? Like, they, either they know that they're making the wrong decision or they are so dumb that they, like, they can't they see care. it. I, I just think, think it's care. so dumb. It's, oh my gosh. They're in the Academy, though. Like, why did they, I think they're in denial or I think... They know and don't care, and they just vote for... Or they don't watch all the films, well, which that's... we that's that's clearly documented as well. They don't watch the movies, and then they still feel like they're obligated to vote, or or that they're qualified to vote. I don't yeah. I don't know how you can be qualified if you don't see all the movies, but that's yeah. just me. Laura's referencing a discussion in our If Bill Street Could Talk episode. Yeah, so this is not speculation. Like This is actually Academy members have anonymously confirmed that not everyone in the Academy watches all the movies. Even though they're literally sent screeners and they're given like passes to go see movies yeah. at different theaters. Anyway, whatever. It's a political thing. I fucking hate it. This movie should have won Best Picture. Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger are incredible in their performances. Yeah. They bring everything that the book wants to say. I think they did such incredible preparation to get to know who these characters are because both of them have an incredible amount of internalized homophobia, but I think that it manifests in such a different way that that kind of nuanced performance is Oscar-worthy. Yeah, Heath Ledger, who was 25 I just at the can't time. believe that. I know, I was looking up their ages. Yeah, he just... looks older, granted, but still, he, at 25 years old, he absolutely captured what Annie Prue was going for with um, Ennis, which was this young man who is, uh, on the outside, not 19, but on the inside, is well beyond his years in terms of maturity, but who has a deep-seated, like you said, homophobia, but also insecurity about his intelligence, mm. insecurity about his financial standings. He, he mentions here and there how hard it is to be broke, mm -hmm. to be poor, and the fact that he is aware enough to know that he can only ever have these odd jobs for the rest of his life. Another thing that he's insecure about is his education. Yes. He talks about how all he wanted to do was be a sophomore in high school. But then the tragedy that befalls his family is that both of his parents die in a car accident and he has to drop out of school because he has to make money and raise himself and his other siblings. Right. And part of his background as well is that his father literally took him to see the body of a murdered gay man yeah. when he was like six years old. That I think that sets the tone and, and sets the stakes for how intense the hatred toward a gay person would have been not only at the time, but for his father in particular, and how that hatred was passed down through generations and now exists in him. And that's the reason that he continuously keeps saying, like, this is just a one-off thing with you. It's not about me being gay. 
It's about the fact that like I'm attracted to you and I don't see that as a gay relationship. I see that as like something that I just have to, it's like a flaw within me. Yeah, like that line in the short story, which is in the movies, like I ain't queer. And then yeah. Jack's like, I ain't either. Yeah. I, and see that line, that scene alone exhibits how both of them have this deep-seated homophobia, internalized homophobia, but it comes out of them in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another reason why this movie is so intense. Even the first time that they have sex, it's like a fight. Yeah. And I think it's an incredible way of visualizing the internal struggle that both of them have to go through just to even touch each other, yeah. not even sexually, but like even just interact in a way where they're being vulnerable with each other. Yeah, and later on in the movie when Jack is flirting with Ennis, he takes it too far by lassoing his foot and mm. tripping him, and it's like a big fall. Ennis reacts justifiably so but with a pushback, and then it turns to a fight, and they're both so confused that they don't know if they're about to make love or yeah. about to duke it out. And you can see that confusion so well in both of their faces. They're they're fighting, but they're also touching each other. I've never seen anything like it before. It's it's in the story, mm -hmm. but perfectly directed and put on screen by um, Ang Lee and of course the actors. Yeah, to end our discussion on Ennis, he is such he is a man who is holding back his true self his sexuality so hard that he's literally clenching yeah. on the outside. Heath Ledger, when he delivers his lines with an almost closed mouth. His mm -hmm. lips barely move. You know, you can see the lines around his lips. He is clenching his fists. His hands are in, are in fists. He is just so on edge for every single scene in this movie. He's just a man who is, you know, using this cowboy image as a front and is like everything in his power to hold back his, his true self and his sexuality. Yeah, something that I love too that you just said about his cowboy personality, I think that it's really not an accident that he has taken on this persona of a cowboy because that has always been the Mer American masculine stereotype. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most masculine things that you could be, right? Mm -hmm. In in the 1960s America, you couldn't be attacked as being gay from the outside because that was just such a masculine thing to be. You're dirty and I mean, even still, I think like there's not enough leeway for people's personalities to come out and say like, oh, I can be a gay cowboy. Like I can be a guy who likes to work in construction and also be gay. Like people aren't given that leeway. It's not developed. You don't see it in, in film. You don't see it in pop culture enough. I think maybe we're starting to see complex gay characters, but I think they're continuously underwritten, right? You mm -hmm. have sort of the stereotypic, like, gay best friend who's sassy. Like, that's why those kinds of portrayals are not really helpful to people being able to explore a complex role. But I think, again, it goes back to why this is such a wonderfully written 
movie and why, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to sort of go into Power of the Dog a little bit, but that's exactly what Phil is hiding up behind as well. You know, you can't be a gay cowboy. No one can approach me in that way because I come across as such a masculine being. And so I just, I love that that's baked into Ennis's character. He wouldn't have sought that out for no reason. I also love how you talk about Heath Ledger's physicality in the way that he approached this character. And in two interviews that I watched with him because I really focused, there's not much out there with Heath Ledger anymore. Yeah. So I really wanted to, to see his approach to this character. And he his maturity just blew me away. In 2005, he's being asked these very inappropriate questions about his sexuality. And in a lot of, a lot of interviews, he just doesn't even answer. He just sits in the chair. And then it makes the interviewer uncomfortable. Like, like yeah. they start like poking more and they ask a little bit more investigative, you know, questions. And he just kind of sits there and takes it and he's really quiet. And then the two times that I was referencing earlier about the way that he discusses his approach to this character, he said that the homophobia that is inside of him is literally part of his DNA. The way that he developed the mentality of the character was he got it from his father and his father's father and friends. And so that clenching was, again, this like internal struggle within himself. Like he's just constantly not only fighting with himself, but also throwing himself self-hatred mm -hmm. just consistently because he can't get out of that mindset of like, how can I be a man and also be gay? That tension is, is so mature to bring to a character like that when you're 25. Yeah. What a talent gone too soon. Think of all the performances we could have got mm. out of him. And yeah, his final, or no, second to last film, The Dark Knight, everyone has seen that. Mm. And The Joker, I mean, I think it's such a famous Oscar-winning performance that people maybe have forgotten just how it's probably the best supporting actor performance of all time mm. regardless of if it's in a superhero movie or not well there's that there's that joke in like film circles about how like no one wants to be the joker no one wants to reinvent the joker they just want to outdo heath ledger's joker right yeah <laughs> exactly so gosh it's it's so sad to watch this movie and just like how we were talking about with river phoenix last i episode. wrote that in my notes as well yeah, yeah it adds such a layer of devastation yeah. even though heath ledger's character is not the one who ends up dying at the end of the movie and we can kind of jump from this conversation nicely into contrasting jack twist's character yeah. with his which played by jake gyllenhaal again with incredible maturity he was only a year older than heath ledger when they filmed this and his character is so different yeah He's much more um, open, I guess, to Ennis about his um, sexuality, but also he takes more risks. Like mm -hmm. he's in the bar, he he gave you know his puppy dog eyes to that yeah. other man who might be gay, might not be, um, and then also goes down to Mexico. And there's that in probably the best scene of the film, the "I can't quit you" scene, mm -hmm. which again taken straight. The dialogue taken straight from the mm -hmm. short story. Ennis is like, more or less implies that if Jack keeps on going down to Mexico for gay sex, that Ennis is gonna like beat him up. And Ennis more or less fully admits that you have no idea how hard it is to want something and only get it a few times a year. Like, you're keeping me on this short leash. How dare you judge me for going to the one place <laughs> where, that I have access to 
where I can be my true self and satisfy myself uh, that way. Yeah, and and that's why it's such a beautiful scene when Ennis, the one scene where we get like a tender moment between the two men, Ennis is able to, he's like so sleepy and I think a little bit drunk and he Mm -hmm. comes up behind Jack and has that like tender embrace of him and that's what Jack holds on to. That's the only moment that Jack feels like, like Ennis loves him and he's not in, he's not hindered by anything like that's that's the moment that he just like it's not even a sexual moment and what he's saying about like the sexual release of it is like i need both and i think that's why we get a little a fun little cameo by david harbour which i completely forgot was in here i would not have known who david harbour yeah. was in 2012 pre-hopper harbour oh pre-hopper harbour he uh, can, just I mean, yeah it is so great uh, david harbour's career is so awesome because for years he would show up in movies for a scene and then dip out and now that he's hopper i i'm speaking for you but like one of our favorite tv characters yeah ever yeah now that he's famous and an a-lister it is just so great to look back at these older movies and be like oh just you wait david your career's about to blow up well and not only that he brings he plays a gay man in this and i think he brings that maturity to the role i think he's another actor that wasn't held back like i I watched an interview with jake gyllenhaal about how oppressive it was to be asked about his sexuality like every single interview he was like this is not the purpose of the movie like stop focusing on it i'm so sick of answering these questions and i i haven't watched any any interviews with david harbour about it but i think he had the same approach he wasn't put off by the intense scrutiny that was probably going to come with a role like this Mm -hmm. he just brings a maturity and a professionalism to the role that adds to the character completely agree yeah he's david harbour has a scene and a half yeah and it's just so a uh, great addition it's an interesting scene and a half too because i think oh, it, that wasn't in the short story correct so jack claims that he's having an affair with a rancher's wife and it's interesting to me that the movie suggests more that he just said it was the rancher's wife instead of the rancher because i actually think that when i watched the movie and it was visualized and he Anna might Ferris have, is the, and Anna Ferris is randomly yeah. the the rancher's wife. It was interesting to me to actually look back at the short story and consider that he might have just said the rancher's wife, and he actually meant the rancher. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So it's like kind of said in the novel, but it might be different, mm-hmm. right? But I was gonna say about the scene and a half with David Harbour gives us a really interesting look into gay coding. Like we've talked about code switching a little bit on this podcast here and there, but specifically I think in the context of racial code switching. But I think it's really interesting to watch two characters start to signal a little bit. And even just if it's uh, offering a cigarette or maybe holding a hand a little bit longer than you normally would, or eye contact is another thing that we've talked about in context of Jane Austen. (laughs) Prolonged eye contact, what that can do for a character. But I, I actually really love how we get that in different ways, how Jack Twist starts to signal with that guy in the bar and then gets shut down because that guy can like, he knows 
mm-hmm. that there might be some signaling going on and he needs to shut it down for whatever reason. But clearly he's uncomfortable with it. And then how Jack Twist, he becomes an absolute expert in starting to code switch and signal and the way that he can pick up on things like he does with David Harbour. And I think that he's so in need of that tender love that he's willing to do whatever it takes. And and even, see, I think that this is another argument for the fact that he might have been clocked by other people. I think he was so in need of the physical but also emotional love that he wasn't getting from Ennis that he started to become a little bit too careless with his actions. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I just think that that's like kind of a subliminal message that he just said or did just like one wrong thing right. too many times. You know, like maybe one time people could look another way, but then his trips and his, you know, maybe hitting on the wrong person or something like that, maybe just like yeah. interpreting a signal incorrectly and trying to make a move on someone just that one last time, I just feel like he just took too many risks. I think that that's kind of like a, a little bit of a signal that maybe he was he was murdered. Yeah. But again, like, what a different kind of tragedy for this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like, it's something that everybody wants and needs and should have. Like, <laughs> I've talked to my therapist about this, but like, one of the things that like a lot of therapists and counselors will say, like, if you don't have, like, love is just as essential as food and water, right? Like, unconditional care is something that people need or else you die. He was not able to have that in his life. Mm-hmm. And it's something that everyone is essential, has an essential right to. Right. Um, and again, it's just like, that's just a different kind of tragedy. Like he's being tortured externally. I think he in a way has a lot more peace about who he is, even though he claims like, oh, I'm not queer either. In that one line, I think he is a lot more self acceptance than Ennis does, but he's being tortured externally and Ennis tortures himself internally. And I think that that obviously affects both characters in a very different way. Unfortunately, the externalization of Jack's characteristics lead to his murder. Um, But we get the hope at the end of the story that maybe Ennis is able to accept himself a little bit more mm-hmm. by the end. And that's like, that's the only hope that you can have because I think he also comes to the idea, comes to the understanding that like the kind of love that, that he and Jack shared, I think he realizes he's not going to find it in anyone else. Yeah. But at least maybe we can hope that he's a little bit more at peace with who he is. Yep. That's my response to everything you just said. Yeah, the second most heartbreaking scene in the movie is the final scene when he hangs up Jack's shirt and hangs up Jack's shirt and has that kind of line like, oh, Jack, like, what am I going to do? But it's more of like exactly what you said, him finally coming. I mean, he goes all the way out to Jack's parents' house. Like, he he clearly is trying to get some closure for both Jack and himself. And that's character development right there. I mean, that he... He is finally in touch with his motion, emotions that he's been repressing for all these years. We kind of pivoted back to Ennis by this That's point. okay. Yeah, so talked about Ennis, talked about Jack, the final performance, also Oscar-nominated, Michelle Williams, who plays uh, Ennis' oh my gosh. Uh, wife. Yeah. And Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams fell in love on set. Yep. 
during this movie and they had a daughter together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, again, tragic. This whole story is so tragic where she, you can tell that she's a character who doesn't have the confidence enough to really stand up for herself. Yeah. And the only time she does is after the divorce when she confronts Jack in the kitchen during Thanksgiving about how she knows that Jack and uh, Ennis never uh, went fishing Mm -hmm. on those trips. Mm -hmm. You know, she put the note uh, in the tackle box that was never, the tackle box was never opened and the note was never read. Mm -hmm. Heartbreaking performance, Oscar nominated. As I said, she lost to... Rachel Weisz for The Constant Gardener. You know, everyone's favorite movie, The Constant Gardener. She, Michelle Williams, has been nominated a few times since. What a gifted Mm -hmm. actress. Um, I love her and everything. But, yeah, such a thankless role to play the wife that can't stand up for herself and is kind of bombarded shell-shocked with this truth after she witnesses Ennis and Jack kiss after years of not seeing each other just totally heartbreaking and it 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 would have been easy for this performance to be um forgotten and understated uh but she really commits and it's not anything too showy or overblown Mm -hmm. not understated either it's kind of the perfect wavelength and and only nailed that with his direction. I have so much to say about not only her performance, but also this character. So my first thing I was going to say was the fact that Annie Prue did a wonderful job naming this character, because the first time that I read it, I was like, you know what? Almost sounds like the kind of name you would give a cow. And I feel like that's how her mm-hmm. character is treated, because not only is she in a loveless marriage she's a beard also it's so sad to watch someone just she's just treated as that stereotypical like you know you're a mother that's all you're good for is producing babies and caring for babies Mm -hmm. and i think like giving her a name like alma nails that kind of disrespect for women it like literally sounds like a cow's name. The other thing too is like, you're talking about what a thankless job her character has. And I think not only in the fact that she, again, is in a loveless marriage, but she protects Ennis. Yeah. For years, she says nothing. And not only to other people, but like she doesn't even bring it up to him. Mm-hmm. Like... She's so devoted to her children, and I think she's also probably in a lot of denial. Yeah. But not only that, to add another layer to her suffering, she struggles in the face of this, like, timeless love. You know what I mean? Like, Ennis and Jack are so emotionally intertwined, and they clearly have this, like, Again, like, not only amazing chemistry, but also this, like, profound emotional love for each other that just, like, you see in other people and you're just like, wow, like, you know, where is that for me? Like, where is that love for me? We found that. Yeah, I I do feel like we found that. But to be (laughs) like, can you imagine someone on the outside, 
looking into that kind of love mm-hmm. and like seeing that they can't have that. It's so sad to watch her struggle in the face of that kind of profound love. And I I think it's really wonderful that she gets a little bit of redemption, that she does get to divorce Ennis, which is the right thing, good for her, for actually standing up for herself and and leaving him for that kind of... Enforcing to get child support legally. Yes, yes. She didn't have to do that at all. And she kind of goes and... um, Not that she's a gold digger, but I think in a lot of ways she recognizes that the only way that she's going to be able to support herself and her girls is to go after someone who had money. And the guy that runs the the grocery store, well, maybe well, maybe they don't have, you know, the beautiful love story that Ennis and Jack might have had. At least she's able to take care of her children and herself like that's she's a smart woman. And I don't think that she gets a lot of a lot of respect for like making that kind of decision. Um, she plays this role so wonderfully. That's kind of my rant about why she should have won Best Supporting Actor for this, or yes. actress, whatever, for this role. Um, yeah, she just brings this like profound sadness. Like every time you look at her, she she's another character with very few lines. Um, and even is the, she's even kind of the victim of marital rape in a couple scenes and it's just like oh gosh like what a profound character to have to portray and she does it with her eyes for the most mm-hmm. part yeah um anyway agreed yeah the last person to talk about on the list is our our boy hong lee so what a crazy career this man has had uh originally from taiwan now lives in new york he started out with uh, a movies in Taiwan and then immediately came over to America to make Sense and Sensibility? What the heck? That's so random. And I just watched Persuasion. So yeah. it's fun to make those little like Jane Austen connections. And then he he went back um, to the East to start making movies and made Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That was such a huge movie. Yeah. I remember even, God, what time? That, that came out. I'm shocked to see that came out in 2000 because I, we were in kindergarten and I remember people talking about that movie. That's how prolific this movie was in 2000. Yeah. One best foreign language film was nominated for best picture. But yeah, just a... A total nuts phenomenon there. Michelle Yeoh is in that, the the amazing Michelle Yeoh, who's experiencing a career resurgence now mm-hmm. with everything ever all at once. Then, <laughs> this is so crazy, comes back to the States to direct Hulk, which is this art house superhero movie, which more of those are starting to come out these days due to uh, Christopher Nolan, speaking of The Dark Knight. But before then, that this was like, it's a weird mixture. It doesn't quite work. I admire the ambition of Hulk, but it, it doesn't quite work. Then Brokeback Mountain. He's back in the, the Oscar conversation. Everyone thought he was going to win. Does not. Then he, he's kind of doing a one for you, one for them type yeah. thing. He makes Lust Caution, which is a, a foreign movie. Uh, it's nominated for Best Foreign Picture and then comes back doing Taken Woodstock. I haven't seen that. Life of Pi, which he won Best Director again for that movie, but didn't take home the gold. And then now his career has petered out a bit. He's big into the 48 frames per second type of filmography that doesn't quite work. It, it, it causes nausea and it doesn't look right. I think we talked about Gemini Man. Yeah, so he, he first did Billy Lynn's Long halftime walk which is a weird 
bizarre movie, and then Gemini Man, which simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it it's not well written or well made. So interesting. What a you can't define his career, but in the middle of everything, he had just this like one, two, three, four punch of getting nominated for Oscars and then failing, having a spectacular failure, then returning with another Oscar-winning film. He, like I said, he won Best Director for this film. He has since admitted his disappointment for not winning for Brokeback, the Best Picture. He really poured his heart and soul into this. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's shown on screen. He, <laughs> he had to endure the harsh weather of um, Alberta, Canada mm-hmm. during filming. I guess the whole crew, cast and crew had to. But he he really wanted this, and he had admitted that he has, and he didn't get it. Uh, he got Best Director, but he wanted to kind of reward his whole crew by getting Best Picture, and it just didn't didn't happen for him. So this is also the second time he has beat out Steven Spielberg for Best Director. Mm. Um, Good Mun- for him. Yeah, Munich was up uh, during this year. But yeah, I feel like... I don't know. I, I, there's a, a kind of a sadness knowing that I think, I don't know if he'll ever be able to return to these hits. Uh, I think he's just had too many failures in a row now to get back to the place where he was to make these um, art house hits, right? Because this is technically, it's not technically an art house. Focus Features funded it, but it was $14 million it cost. It made. I was going to ask, we haven't talked about the. It made 170. Finances. It made $178 million. That's incredible. So, mega hit. That's incredible. Uh, for focus features. But that's that's all I have to say about Only. Any closing thoughts you have? Yeah, I completely forgot to talk about the final scene when Ennis goes to visit Jack's parents after he's died. I think that's one of the, that's one of the scenes that really breaks me because... I think that that's another amazing way of almost like late character development for Jack because I think that the reason he's more at peace with who he is is through his mother's love. You can see that she maybe has a suspicion that Ennis is more than just a friend. She's so wonderful to him right like even even in the way that she touches his shoulder when he's sitting at the kitchen table and oh my gosh like they're clearly so poor but when ennis comes down with jack's jacket or sort of his denim button-down shirt um with his calico shirt inside um she gives him a paper bag Mm -hmm. to walk out of the house with and that small little thing it's one of those things where you see and you're like that must have been that might have been like a lot for her to give like maybe that's where she collects their compost or something you know and she's old and she or she uses it to carry something to the car right like i feel like that paper bag was such a big gift and to see that contrasted against jack's father's attitude toward ennis where he basically doesn't say a thing and he's just staring him down and he also shares that story about how jack talked about bringing someone up and running the ranch with him the way that he like spits that story out like you clearly can understand that that's where jack's homophobia came from 
again like that kind of late game character development gives it such a such a more tragic ending and like oh my gosh like watching Ennis walk around Jack's room is so affecting because you can imagine in a different world Jack might have been there showing him this is where I grew up like this is the game that I played with this little figure you know this is a book that I read in fifth grade and it meant a lot to me or you know what I mean like in a different world you see that continuing interaction but when Ennis returns and he he's there alone it's like it's just another like profound loss. I think it just adds to the loss that he's that he's experiencing. And then when he finds the coat, I mean, that's such a that's a huge payoff too. Because remember, in the beginning, the very beginning, he makes a comment about like, God, I can't believe I left that shirt up on the mountain. Right. And Jack says nothing, mm-hmm. and he's literally he's probably wearing it at that moment. Like, oh my god, and oh like oh when he hugs the shirt. I just, like, that, I think, like, really broke me. That was, like, another point where I was just, like, crying so hard because it just shows, like, that's that's the one time when Jack felt like Ennis was, like, available, emotionally available and vulnerable when he came up behind him and, like, hugged him. And then when he hugs that shirt, you have that, like, recreation of that moment. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't get Jack there. And it's, like, it's hard to say that it's his fault. Like, you know, maybe if he had expressed himself and allowed him to be with Jack, maybe Jack might've lived because he could have gotten a divorce and they might've moved on to a ranch, but you know, you can't fault him. And I think that's another beautiful layer of the movie. Like you can't blame either of them because we have proof that sharing your sexuality was dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so you can't blame Ennis for his attitude and how he struggles with himself because he didn't want to end up dead, right? Like that's right. the reality for his character and for people who went through this and who continuously go through this, who probably grow up in Wyoming yeah. <laughs> or around people like my roommate in North Dakota who don't give them the respect and the leeway to be themselves and to share themselves in an authentic if, way. If Wyoming is how it was in 2016, then yes, that still is mm-hmm. the case. Yeah. Um, all right, so... Uh, Beautiful, profound thoughts there, Lore. I agree with all of them. Final rating for both the short story and the movie, what, four to four for both? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree. Um, The the short story is great. No fluff. It's an hour. And then the movie is a a little on the longer side, but I don't think ever, ever overstays its welcome. No. It's a profound, profound piece of art. Yeah. So... Gosh, I guess that's the end. Um, we'll be we're taking a short break and we'll be back with our Power of the Dog uh, episode, which is kind of like a part two to this one. But please follow, rate, and review if you haven't already. Uh, five star review, please. Uh, <laughs> please. And yeah, five stars, Angel, five stars. That's from Nope. I was uh, just going to say, we're coming fresh off watching Nope. If you have the opportunity to go see that in the theater, highly suggest you do that. It's, it's fun. so fun. And oh, it talks about like ranching a little bit in yeah. California. Oh, has yeah. has some like cowboy vibes. Yeah. Nice. Go watch <laughs> it. It was super good and we really enjoyed it. So thanks for listening and we'll see ya on the next one.